right, you're on. I am free. Do you feel free? What are we going to do with that freedom? Amazing love. These are wonderful songs we've been singing. And I don't know about you, but it's just been really touching my heart, you know. Bill asked me, well, should we have communion now? And I said, no, let's have it at the end. And then we sang one more song, and I'm thinking, yeah, maybe we should have it now. (laughs) But um, amazing love. How can you not sing about that? And then we said, and we would honor Him in all that we do. How do you do that? How do you honor God? We're going to look at one way today. Um, so uh, I'm going to get back on my soapbox that I've been on since last November uh, in variations of that, so bear with me. But um, I, I was reading some, some studies, um, and overwhelmingly these studies show that when people were asked, what do you most want? What do you think the answer was? Peace. One step back. <laughs> happiness. 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 Want to be happy. That's been overwhelmingly the, the answer. And, you know, I, I'm like Bill. It's like, I honestly believe that falls short of really what they want. Um, happiness can be almost an escape. If I can just be happy, if I can do stuff that make me happy, then I won't have to deal with being still in considering the weighty things of my life. So I think underneath the cry for happiness is a cry for peace. And the reason for that is because we're moral we're moral beings. At the bottom line, God's made us moral. And so what happens is we we struggle with ourselves and we struggle with other people because we say what we believe, but then we find ourselves Acting different sometimes, right? And people act different from how we believe they should be acting. This is what causes us to be in this place of conflict within and conflict without. And it's not just me with me and me with you. It's us with them and nations against nations. It's just this whole way the enemy has taken and and used that against us. The fact that we're moral beings. Um... But this kind of peace that we're talking about, you know, as, as I've said before, it's called shalom in the, in the Jewish language, and it has to do not with absence of conflict, it has to do with wholeness and well-being within you as a person. Um, and that is usually disturbed when we feel that things aren't just. There's injustice that has happened. Something's not fair, and that upsets us. Um, it can upset us most when it's us that are involved, but it upsets us as well when it's some group of people or some person that we see injustice has happened to, and and we we get upset about that. Um, all these thoughts for me have come out of the scripture that I've already talked about six times, Micah six eight. Um, <laughs> what happens is the question is given well God what should I bring to you and, and God's response is you know what is good oh man but to do justice to 
to love mercy and to walk humbly before me. Um, and so, you know, that's been cropping up a lot since it's on my radar. I don't know about you all, but when God starts putting his finger on something that he's trying to give you more understanding about, it's like, oh, it's there. Oh, I read it here in the Bible. It's right here too. And it's here and it's here. It's here. Well, I, I don't know about you, but um, I don't know if you remember, we went to Transworld Radio a few weeks back that uh, there were there were pictures between the men and women's bathroom there. So if you didn't go to the bathroom, you wouldn't have seen them. But uh, it's interesting. There were three pictures there. They were kind of contemporary, black frame, thin frame, um, basically um, white paper with two words in each frame. And I thought, I looked at those things, I said, oh, wow. Nice font, <coughs> just simple, two words each one. Do justly, love mercy, walk humbly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like that. You know, of course, God's been speaking to me about this. I'm like, wow, you know, it's not at the front of the building when you come in. It's not like right there. Like, here's, here's our message, you know. But I thought, you know, why is it back here between the bathrooms? And it's almost, it struck me, it's like, okay, this is a reminder of what motivates them to do, their, do what they do there. And it should be a reminder to us of how do we honor God? These are good things you can do. If this is what you want to bring before me, do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly before me. Um, there wasn't anybody much more righteous acting than the Pharisees. I mean, they they knew the law and they walked they walked it out externally, but Jesus railed against them. He he, he really got angry at them because they neglect, neglected the weightier things, which were justice, mercy, and faithfulness. And so, um, you know, I, I understand. The Old Testament is law, and, and these are the things that the Pharisees neglected from the law, and that we, we, we live under grace, right? We have this favor from God that he's given us the gift of faith, and we can believe in a finished work of Christ. But um, this unmerited favor uh, also gives us the freedom to walk in these three things. These are things that God says is good, uh, they were good in the Old Testament. They're good today. Um, and it's interesting to me because, uh, you know, Jesus said we'd be persecuted. And I think anytime you try to do justice, you're going to find you're going to find resistance. So I want to talk about that a little bit today. Last time we looked at the Good Samaritan story, and we looked a little bit about um, the concept of mercy and what it what it was like to be a good neighbor. And today I want to kind of look at the difference, a little bit of the difference between mercy and justice. Mercy really is this ministry that we do to meet people where they are, um, basically help them with their problems, their, their, the symptoms of things. If they're hungry, we feed them. If they're uh, naked, we clothe them. And so that's what a mercy ministry does. It really helps individuals and groups with where they are. A justice ministry, on the other hand, really addresses the systems that cause them to be there. And 
as a church as a whole, I think the body of Christ does a decent job with mercy ministry. Justice, as I continue to read about it, is a far more difficult ministry to walk in. Um, I think, well, I look back and see Susan back there who, you know, she prayed for her neighborhood. You know, vision for her neighborhood was almost a little bit of a stick your toe in this this area of justice ministry, you know. But, um, and Pat, I know you, you're thinking God may have something new for us. It may be hard. Um, writing in justice tends to bring resistance. And so we're going to look at this example in Nehemiah today of how Nehemiah brought brought about justice in an unjust situation and i'm not going to apologize for reading five chapters of scripture this morning but that's what we're going to do and because a lot of it is reading the bible um i'm not going to make a whole lot of comments but the the purpose for reading this story um is because well first of all it's a great story it's a story that god has there for a purpose um, if you take the time to dwell on it, you see both his redemption and his discipline in the story. Um, so if you want to turn to that, I'm going to be reading out of the easy-to-read version, which probably none of you have. Yes, Do you have that? Yes. Okay. Um, Nehemiah. Nehemiah 1 through 5. Chapters 1 through 5. Um, so I will read and then make a few comments and bullets. And here's here's my heart. Um, we're not going to exegete this, obviously, but what I want you to try to begin to see are some ways that Nehemiah moved through this ministry of doing justice. You know, doing justice is not a virtue. It's not a it's not a character trait. It's it's an activity. You know, it's not. It, it doesn't say be just. It says do just, do justice. And so, I think what I want to do is look at that. And so, hopefully, as we read through this, maybe God's been speaking to you about stepping out uh, in an area like this. Maybe, maybe you have a compassion or a passion for uh, a person or a group of people that you know are being treated unjustly. You know, a lot of it just happens to be how aware of you are of injustice that's going around you or in other parts of the world. You know, one one Sunday a year, the American ch- church prays for the what what kind of church? The persecuted church. Obviously, it ought to be on our mind a little bit more often than that. But anyway, I want to I want to re- read through this particular thing, but. Um, a little bit of the backstory about Nehemiah is um, the, the 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 nation is in a predicament because they've been unfaithful to God and they've made God a reproach to the other nations, um, and so God's promise of judgment came and and so He brought the Assyrians, He brought the Babylonians, and they they began to uh, conquer and exile the nation of Israel first and then the nation of Judah second and so um, they were they were sent into exile in three stages 
and they also came back in three stages because what happened is um, the nation of Persia became the world power while they were in captivity. They conquered the Babylonians and the Assyrians. And so under the three kings of Persia, Cyrus, Darius, and Artaxerxes, is that how you pronounce it? Artaxerxes. Um, Those kings provided a way for them to come back in three stages. Uh, And they came back under the leadership of Zerubbabel, Ezra and Nehemiah. Nehemiah was the last one. And so um, in this process, they when they came back, they rebuilt the temple, but the walls of the city and the city itself just lay in ruins even after the 70 years of exile. And so to understand why building the walls is a risk in any satellite city of a, of, of a conquering nation is... It makes them defensible and then therefore makes them also subject to re- rebellion and uprising again. So it's not, a, it's not a, a, an easy thing to just let a conquered city rebuild their walls. But So that's kind of the backdrop for where Nehemiah starts. And so we're going to start reading that uh, beginning in chapter 1. These are the words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. I, Nehemiah, was in the capital city of Susa in the month of Keslev. This was the 20th year that Artaxerxes was king. While I was in Susa, one of my brothers named Hanani and some other men came from Judah. I asked them about the Jews who had escaped captivity and still lived in Judah. I also asked them about the city of Jerusalem. They answered, Nehemiah, the Jews who escaped captivity captivity and are in the land of Judah are in much trouble. They are having many problems and are full of shame because the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard this about the people of Jerusalem and about the wall, I sat down and cried. I was very sad. I fasted and prayed to the God of heaven for several days. Then I prayed this prayer. Lord, God of heaven, you are the great and powerful God. You are the God who keeps his agreement of love with his people who love you and obey your commands. Please open your eyes and ears and listen to the prayer of your servant is praying before you day and night. I am praying for your servants, the Israelites. I confess the sins we Israelites have done against you. I am confessing that I have sinned against you and that the other people in my father's family have sinned against you. We Israelites have been very bad to you. We have not obeyed the commands, rules, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Please remember the teaching that you gave your servant Moses. You said to him, If you Israelites are not faithful, I will force you to be scattered among the nations. But if you Israelites come back to me and obey my commands, this is what I will do. Even if your people have been forced to leave their homes and go to the ends of the earth, I will gather them from there, and I will bring them back to the place I have chosen 
to put my name. The Israelites are your servants and your people. You used your great power and rescued them. So Lord, please listen to my prayer and listen to the prayers of all your other servants who are happy to honor you. Help me today as I ask this king for help. Make him pleased with me so that he will be kind and give me what I ask for. So, the first thing in doing justice is having an awareness that there is injustice. Um, Nehemiah, in his, this particular case, and, and let me say this, Nehemiah is not the perfect, here's how it's done. It is an example of a way it's done. The way it's done is the way God leads in every time he wants to write injustice. But this should give us some ideas of, of essential things that are important to have if God calls you to be a person or a group that is going to right a wrong in his sight. Um, and the first thing is awareness. So he had a brother. He had friends that came from a place that he grew up, his relatives were from. And so he asked about it. How, how are things going there? Now, he probably had a general idea. Um, he knew that he knew the history of the, of the country, but then he hears an eyewitness. Things aren't good. Things are really bad there. And, and there's a lot of shame there because the walls are all broken down and the gates are burnt down. So well, what's his response when, when he hears this? What wells up in him is compassion. You know, this, that's this element of mercy that we talked about, you know, last month. So com- compassion wells up in him and causes him, a man, to cry, to weep. Um, so what does he do about that? Does he just get angry and rail? No, he immediately turns to who? He turns to the one that can do something about it, to God. And so... When we see injustice, um, if we're really going to be doing anything about it, we have to enter in. We have to enter in in here. You know, Greg, you were talking the, uh, the other week about the difference between it was sorrow and grief or pain and grief. What were the two words? Grief was different. I remember that in it. It was something that you carry with you. Uh, it's, it's not just an outward expression. And so, yes, Nehemiah had this outward expression, but he also had this internal thing that drove him to prayer um, before the Lord. Now, notice uh, the prayer. You know, it was a prayer of intercession. It was a prayer of confession. It was a prayer of identity. You know, those people that are living in that city, they sinned. No, no. We all have sinned. We all can pray that same prayer in some way. Um, And after confessing sin and identifying with that whole situation, he then asked God. Then he asked God. He came on the basis of humility, and he asked God and reminded God of what God said. Now, if anybody's going to honor God's word, God is. We may not honor his word, but and and he asked him in a humble way. He didn't throw it in his face. He said, "This is what you said, uh, and, and I am humbly asking you to look at your servants 
and see if they've come to a place of repentance and see and hear their prayers. And so he asked God to do something about injustice. Um, so let's continue in, in chapter chapter 2. At that time I was the king's wine servant or cupbearer. In the month of Nisan, in the twentieth year of King Artaxerxes, some wine was brought to the king. I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had never before been sad when I was with him, but now I was sad. So the king asked me, Are you sick? Why do you look so sad? I think your heart is full of sadness. Then I was very afraid. Now, why would he be afraid? You, 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 don't, you should be happy and honored to be in front of the king, not sad. And so anybody that's sad shouldn't be standing before the king. And so um, he was afraid. And even though he was afraid, he said to the king, May the king live forever. I am sad because the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins. And the gates of that city have been destroyed by fire. And then the king said to me, I'm sorry to hear that. More wine, please. <laughs> he didn't say that, did he? I mean, it's an amazing response to a servant. What do you want me to do for you? I mean, is that an open door? That's an open door. Before I answered, I prayed to the God of heaven. Then I answered the king. If it would please the king, and if I have been good to you, please send me to Jerusalem, the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried. I want to go there and rebuild the city. The king and the queen who was sitting next to him asked me, How long will your trip take? When will you get back here? The king was happy to send me. So I gave him a certain time. Just so you know, that was 12 years. <laughs> 12 years. I've always wondered how long it took. We'll get into this here in just a minute. I also said to the king, if it would please the king, now he's already asked him one, one thing. I also said to the king, if it would please the king to do something else for me, let me ask. Please give me some letters to show the governors of the area west of the Euphrates River. I need these letters so the governors will give me permission to pass safely through their lands on my way to Judah. I also need lumber for the heavy wooden beams for the gates, the walls, the walls around the temple, and my house. So I need a letter from you to Asaph, who is in charge of your forest. The king gave me the letters and everything I asked for. The king did that because my God was kind to me. So I went to the governors of the area west of the Euphrates River and I gave them the letters from the king. The king had also sent army officers and soldiers on horses with me. Sanballat from Horon and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard about what I was doing they were very upset and angry that someone had come to help the Israelites. Okay. So, he prayed a prayer. He heard about this. 
And when did he ask the king? It was four months later. From one from from the Kaslev to Nisan is four months. So he carried this with him and continued to pray this. And obviously during this time he thought about what needed to be done. So there's another thing that has to happen after awareness and inquiry and, and identification. There's got to be a time for thinking about it before you open your mouth. <laughs> okay? Uh, this, in his case, he had four months. I, I found this, uh, this quote from uh, Martin Bubber. He's a Jew. He said, When a man grows aware of a new way in which to serve God, he should carry it with him secretly and without uttering it for nine months as though he were pregnant with it and let others know of it only at the end of that time as though it were a birth. In other words, the principle is when God makes you aware of something, let it incubate. Let it steep. Use that time for what God wants to use it for. And some of that time is to work something in us the one that he's called to, or the group that he's called to do it. It's not, well, we've got it and we're going to go do it. It's like, oh, you want to do something in us before we start. So let's give him time to do that. It's a time to consider the whole matter. It's a time to count the cost and the commitment. It's a time to consider your relationships, your influence, and what is needed. When the king asked him, what, I, what do you want me to do for you? It's like, uh, wait a minute. Give me about five minutes here to, to pray to God. I mean, you, you, don't, you don't make the king wait for anything. And so um, he knew what he needed because he had had this time to think about it. But when the door opened, he stepped through the door. And that's not a, that's a place where we have to be courageous. It's like, oh boy, we've been we've been carrying this burden, we've been seeing this injustice, and well, now the door's open. Uh, let's huddle up and let's pray about this for four or five months, and then let's see if this is what we really want to commit to. You know, so he used that time to be prepared, and then when that opportunity opened, he step through the door. And it's interesting because the, the first things he asked for, he asked for those out of relationship. He didn't just go to the mayor of the city like we might. Let's go to the mayor of the city and let's tell him about this situation and let's see what he'll do for us. He had a relationship. You know, he was the cupbearer. And I mean, that sounds like it's nothing, but the cupbearer was like one of the highest positions in the land. Uh, you know, and and it was a trusted position. And so he used that relationship he had built and he asked for resources from the person that could actually give him something um, and could give him the authority to go and, and, and do what he needed to do. I mean, Sanballat and Tobias couldn't do but so much when he's waving papers around saying, I'm here because of the king and he's conquered you guys as well and you're subservient to him. And so he, he had credentials, and that's important. Um, so once he had the release, the relationships and communication, he let the people know 
that the in the in the realm where he was going, I'm here and I have authority to be here. And so um, that's an important first step is to use your relationships or build those relationships before you step out, you know, in those initial initial times. Let's continue. I went to Jerusalem and stayed there three days. Then at night I started out with a few men. I had not said anything to anyone about what God had put on my heart to do for Jerusalem. There were no horses with me except the horse I was riding. While it was dark, I went out through the valley gate. I rode toward the dragon well and the gate of the ash piles. I was inspecting the walls of Jerusalem that had been broken down and the gates in the wall that had been burned with fire. Then I rode on toward the fountain gate and the king's pool. As I got close, I could see there was not enough room for my horse to even get through. So I went up to the valley in the dark, inspecting the wall. Finally, I turned back and went back through the valley gate. The officials and important Israelites didn't know where I had gone. They didn't know what I was doing. I had not yet said anything to the Jews, the priest, the king's family, the officials, or any of the other people who would be doing the work. Then I said to them, You can see the trouble we have here. Jerusalem is a pile of ruins, and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let's rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. Then we will not be ashamed anymore. I also told them that my God had been kind to me. I told them what the king had said to me. Then they answered, let's start work now. So we began this good work, but Sanballat from Horon and Tobiah, the Ammonite official, and Geshem the Arab heard that we were building again. They made fun of us in a very ugly way. They said, what are you doing? Are you turning against the king? But this is what I said to them. The God of heaven will help us succeed. We are God's servants and we will rebuild this city. You cannot help us in this work because none of your family lived here in Jerusalem. You don't own any of this land and you have no right to be in this place. So, he's aware. He carries this burden. He gets authority to walk through this, this door of opportunity. He gets his resources and then he goes and he immerses himself and, make, and, and he has an eyewitness of the situation himself. He's not just depending on what somebody told him. He's not depending on a news report. He, he goes and he looks at it for himself um, to survey the whole problem himself. So then he calls the people together. Now, the whole city's in ruins. The whole city is in ruins. That's the problem. But he takes this big problem and he turns it into an issue. In other words, he, he only talks about one thing, not the roads and infrastructure and all the others. He talks about the wall. So we've got this great big problem, but this is the issue. We've got to rebuild the wall. So he, he breaks it down into a smaller thing to tackle than this mammoth thing that has to be tackled. And so... He tells them the authority. He tells them that God's with him. Um, and so their response is immediate. Let's start right now. 
man, wouldn't it be nice if that would always be the response? Let's start right now. Now, there's an interesting thing in here. I want Here's the difference between mercy ministry and justice ministry. And I... Let me see if I can find that. Sorry, I'm looking for a particular scripture in page 7 of 13. Hang on a second. Ah, here we go. I had not yet said anything to the Jews, the priest, listen to this, the king's family, the officials, or any of the other people who would be doing the work. You're not going there for them. You're going there with them. And this was like a real thing. I'm like, wow, this is a big difference between mercy ministry where you go and you serve. Here you go and you cast vision and inspire and invite. Um, You get these people that are suffering injustice as a group to to rise up and be a part of the solution. Um, Would that it would be so easy, oh, let's start right now. Uh, But in this case, that's how it happened. So the other thing you will see as we go through this is he allowed them to come up with a plan. He, he, he didn't say, this is how we're going to do it. He allowed them to come up with a plan. And then he worked with them, not just for them. And so, let's continue. The name of the high priest was Eliashib. He and his brothers, the priest, went to work and built the sheep gate. They prayed to make that gate holy to God. They set its doors in place in the wall. The priest worked on the wall of Jerusalem as far as the Tower of the Hundred and the Tower of Hananel. They prayed to make all this work holy to God. The men from Jericho built the wall next to the priest, and Zachar, son of a man named Emery, built the wall next to the men of Jericho, and so on along the wall. Aren't you glad I didn't read all that? (laughs) Here's the point. The first people that just became the example were people of influence. The high priest. I mean, he was a highly regarded person in in this realm. And so, if the high priest and all his people step out first and, and, and are the first to lay their hand to it, and then pray and ask God to bless that, it really makes it easy for somebody else to come in. They did more than just stand on the gold shovel and get their picture made, like you see in a lot of these ribbon cuttings. They pushed the shovel in the ground, they threw the dirt, they got dirty, they did the work. That's what's interesting about this. You saw it was the king's family, it was the priest, it was everybody. It didn't matter your position, it didn't matter your, your, your uh, hierarchy uh, or your social status. Everybody. Lord, that it would be that way every time, right? But in this case, 
This was God's timing. And when God's in something, God makes it happen. He, he you know, it was... The, these people had been disciplined for 70 years. And so, now it was God's time. And He moved on people's hearts. The rich and the poor, the high and the low. And that's why timing is everything. When you, when you step out into this whole area of trying to right injustice... Um, Now, if you read through that whole chapter, you also find some principles. Here's a principle that Mary's very good at is releasing and recognizing people. I mean, look look how much every person that touched that wall, God said, I want their name in the Bible. <laughs> I want your name there, you know. So they're recognized and it's important for, you know, when you're when you're in this realm and you're working with the people that have decided we're going to do something about our situation to recognize that and to celebrate little small victories that you you have along the way because there's going to be resistance. You know, we've seen that in this, this whole thing. Um, and I'll continue reading in chapter 4 here. Um, when Sanballat heard that we were building the wall of Jerusalem, he was very angry and upset. This is like third time. This guy just can't get over it, can he? He started making fun of the Jews and he talked with his friends and the army in Samaria. What are these weak Jews doing? Do they think we'll leave them alone? Do they think they will offer sacrifices? Maybe they think they can finish the building in only one day. They cannot bring stones back from life from these piles of trash and dirt. These are just piles of ashes and dirt. What do these Jews think they are building? Even if a small fox climbed upon it, it would break down their wall of stones. And so here is um, a lot of resistance, a lot of discouragement that's happening. But what does Nehemiah do at this point? Let's stop. Let's pray. Um, remember, God is with us. God is in this. And I think any time in, in today's world, that's something that we're going to have to continue to remember and remind ourselves. God's with us. We know God is with us. Yes, um, you know, we're being a laughing stock. We're running into resistance. Things aren't going like we thought they would. But God is with us. God is with us in this thing. And so that's that's what we need to see here. Um, they, you know... God helped them uh, unfoil, uh, foil a plan for to, to be secretly attacked. They found out about it. They stationed people in the low parts of the wall, if you continue to read. Um, and then they started working with weapons in one hand and their work stuff in the other hand, or vice versa. One would work and one would, one would guard. And so, and the, and the strategy was this. Look, if and when they come, if you hear the cry, run down the wall and get with us. And there's a principle there because, you know, when you start working on something, we need to be aware that whatever thing we're working on, if a part of our group is in trouble, we've got to stop and, and gather around. Gather around and, and help them through that particular piece of resistance or whatever. So, so a couple things here. We need to remain confident that in doing good or doing justice, 
God's on your side. God is, that's part of his character. He's a just God and he likes things to be right. Um, when there's resistance, you pray. Um, you band together and you need to recognize when and where God's at work. These are the things that need to happen. So, this wall had been in the stages of being broken down for 140 years. 140 years they had been suffering with this. Look, it's shameful when you don't have when your walls are broken down and your gates are broke, burned. I mean, look at Raleigh and Kerry, the money they spend on the approach to the city. Let's just tear down all this old stuff and spend a bunch of money and make it look nice. Why is that? Everybody wants to be proud of where they live. These people, they were ashamed. They, they didn't even have the money to put new gates up. And so it meant a lot to them as a people to welcome. This is Jerusalem again. So there's something about that, you know, that builds... Um, it builds community, it builds unity, uh, and, it, and in their case, it builds identity because we are, we are the people of God. And so, um, <coughs> the 140 years that the walls lay in ruins, they fixed in 52 days. 52 days. I was telling Lisa earlier in there, I said, I've got things on my to-do list that are seven years old. I said, you know, some of them, I, you'll pick one of them and do it, and, and, and I'll say, it took me two hours to do that. Why, why have I waited so long to not have the thrill of lining through that item? It only took two hours. I just couldn't get around to it. But so, 140 years. You got projects too? Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, you know. Why did it take 140 years? Part of it's God's discipline. These people did not reflect who God was. But in the right time, with the right man and the right resources, it all came together in 52 days. And the injustice that and the shame that this city faced for so long, God redeemed it. God heard Nehemiah's prayer. God... Uh, Nehemiah reminded him of when your people repent, I'll bring them back together again. Um, so, this whole building of the wall is the foundation. It, it righted the, the injustice that was outside the camp of the nations against them, but there was injustice inside the camp. There was injustice that was going on inside the walls of Jerusalem. And that's what chapter 5 is about. But how can you speak to that as Nehemiah if you haven't been in there and sweated beside them and they see you are with us, you are for us, you're not just telling us what to do, you, you, you have helped us in every way. Uh, he had credibility. He knew, they knew he cared about them and about their city and about their nation and their history. And so... He then, in chapter 5, addresses the more difficult thing, the injustice within the camp. And we're going to read a part of that real quick, and then we'll be, we'll be finished. Many of the poor people began to complain against their fellow Jews. 
Some of them were saying, we have many children. We must, we must get some grain if we're going to eat and stay alive. Other people were saying, this is a time of famine. We have to use, or basically sell, we have to use our fields, vineyards, and homes to pay for grain. And still other people were saying, we have to pay the king's tax on our fields and vineyards, but we cannot afford to pay. So we are borrowing money to pay the tax. We are, as, we are as good as the others. Our sons are as good as the others. Talking about those that are not borrowing money. There are other fellow Israelite people. But we will have to sell our sons and our daughters as slaves. Some of us have already had to sell our daughters as slaves. There's nothing we can do. We have already lost our fields and vineyards. Other people own them now. When Nehemiah heard their complaints... He was very angry. I calmed myself down. Your Bible might say, I, I counseled myself. In other words, his hot anger, he let subside till it was a, an anger that could respond rather than react. Okay? And then he went to the rich families and the officials. I told them, you are forcing your own people to pay interest on money that you loaned them. You must stop doing that. Then I called for all the people to meet together and said to them, Our fellow Jews were sold as slaves to people in other countries. We did our best to buy them back and make them free. And now you are selling them like slaves again. The rich people and officials kept silent, quiet. They could not find anything to say. I mean, this, he's telling everybody, everybody, with them in front of everybody, what they've done, which everybody knows, but it's now out in the open, okay? I said, what you people are not doing right. You know that you should fear and respect our God. You should not do the shameful things other people do. My men, my brothers, and I are also lending money and grain to the people. But let's stop forcing them to pay interest on these loans. You must give their fields, vineyards, olive fields, and houses back to them right now and you must give back the interest you charge them you charge them one percent for the money grain new wine and oil that you loaned them then the rich people and the officials said we will give it back and not demand anything more from them nehemiah we will do as you say well it doesn't stop there he made them sign a piece of paper <laughs> saying that they would do that you know so after those things, they all said, Amen, so be it, and praise the Lord. So the people did as they promised. And so, sometimes that's the hardest injustice to, to get rid of, is the ones that's within the group that's unjustly treated. Because it's like, this is the only right I've got. This is the only way I can exercise, you know, and feel better about my own personal situation. But, you know, one of the things that, you know, we need to see there is um, in the end, there has to be this mutual trust among the people and there has to be a time of thanksgiving. Um, you know, hopefully when you bring people out of an unjust situation, they can recognize that it's not you. 
You know, the glory needs to go to God somehow. And um, I'll just mention this one particular thing because the last thing in Micah 6.8 is to walk humbly with God. And Nehemiah is such an example of that. He didn't require them to support him. He worked with them. He didn't. He didn't hold on to the rights that, if you continue to read through this book, he didn't hold on to the rights and privileges that he was due. He didn't charge them things. He didn't expect food from them. Uh, he was quite the humble man, and he only went to God and said, "God, would you would you reward me for the good things I've done for these people?" And so there, there's a place for humility. And in humility, that's where you really can understand God's way and God's timing in the whole process of walking through trying to right one of these wrongs. Um, as you can see, this kind of ministry is a lot different than a mercy ministry. Um, Jesus said we'd be persecuted. And if we, if we, you know, if we walk in these things that delight Him, doing justice, loving mercy, and walking humbly. Doing justice will bring resistance and persecution. Um, There was no one who was more unjustly treated than Jesus. And we're getting ready to to go to have communion together. Um, The righteous in every way. uh, He suffered injustice more than we can ever imagine. Um, But it was through... That just punishment that brought us peace. Uh, and sometimes I, I think you, you just don't get to peace without justice. There's, it, it, may not be, it may not be you that the justice is measured toward, like in our case, because Jesus took that on, voluntarily took that on. And um, I think the thing that for us to remember is that um, God delights in justice. And if you see a situation that he's prompting us to be involved in, writing an injustice, God is for that. The key there is timing. Is there discipline that needs to continue or is now the right time? And uh, so these are just principles. I just felt like it would would be a good time to kind of um, at least be aware of, of this, be aware of things that we may be called to do as a church. Um, you know, there are like 40 million slaves in the world right now. 40 million people that are in some, some kind of labor or sex slavery in the world. We just don't see it. But it's around us. It's here, even in Raleigh, Durham, and Chapel Hill. Um, and so... What does God want to open our eyes to in the realms of injustice? And how does He want us to walk in that? Because, you know, if you get in there and work in a group like that, they're going to listen to what you have to say about this amazing God that we have. Why do you do this? It's another open door, you know. Um, And so I just encourage you to be in prayer. Um, We keep saying we want to move on with God and... And we do. We want to go deep with God, you know, as a fellowship and as, as and personally. But it's like we're talking about being free. You know, Paul says, "Don't be free to use it for yourself. Be free 
so that through love you can serve. You can serve others. And so, uh, you know, I don't have any gleanings of what it would be, but I feel like the Lord's at least preparing me to be able to recognize that and hopefully be courageous enough to walk through that door when it comes. You, you, you don't do this alone. You know, you've got to have um, you've got to have resources. You've got to have a, a core of people that um, are like-minded about it. And so, um, as we as we come and we partake of the Lord's Supper, remember we are identifying with His blood and His body, His humanness and His death, and um, and in in doing so, it's His very it's an it's it's a way of, of appealing for for grace for continued relationship with the Lord and so be mindful of that as when you come and you partake of of the bread and the and the cup that um, it's it's a it's a it's a reaffirmation of identity it's a it's an appeal to him be gracious uh, help us to walk in a manner worthy of your calling let's pray Father, thank you for, Lord, just your great patience, and Father, and for your long view, uh, Lord, that you have our whole life in view when you, when you work with us, when you call us, uh, when you groom us for things greater than ourselves. And I just really ask, Father, that as we, as we come and we meet before you in communion, Lord, uh, that you would meet us, that you would be gracious to us, that you would uh, reaffirm your amazing love for us, Father, that we would come away today and every day to honor you in all that we do. In Jesus' name. Greg, would you come up and...